Today's episode is sponsored by Gnome Schoolhouse. Looking to host your own unforgettable arts and crafts retreats? Look no further than the Gnome Schoolhouse. Our stunning venue is ready to be the backdrop for your next creative endeavor. Whether it's with friends, colleagues, or fellow creatives, gather your tribe and let us take care of the details. At the Gnome Schoolhouse, we understand that what truly matters is letting your imagination soar. That's why we provide the perfect setting, allowing you to focus on what's important, your creative journey. So bring your ideas to life in our inspiring space. Unleash your creativity, surrounded by the charm and tranquility of the Gnome Schoolhouse. Book your arts and crafts retreat today and let the magic begin. That's N-O-M-E Schoolhouse. Thank you so much, Gnome Schoolhouse. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 244 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about creating a subscription box with my guest, Mary Grabenstetter. Mary is the owner of Needle Sharp, a monthly subscription sewing box service that she founded in 2017 that offers curated garment projects as well as fabric and patterns. The company is a culmination of Mary's love of crafting in her youth, her knowledge of computers and design from her editing experience, and her invaluable experience in retail from Barnes & Noble. Every day, she feels like she's learning and improving as a sewist. Mary, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Excited thank to you, be here. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for being a Craft Industry Alliance member as well. We super appreciate that. And I'm excited to learn about your background and how you came to found this beautiful business, Needle Sharp. So um, let's start, uh, you know, way back when. Uh, where, tell us about where you grew up and what your parents did for work when you were growing up. Um, I was born and raised in Buffalo, New York, or just outside of it, um, in like a, it, it was an exurb, and now it's totally a suburb. Um, um, and my mom was a high school English teacher for 40 years, and my dad was an iron worker in the industry around Buffalo. So oh, wow. it was a very, very uh, low-key, normal, uh, suburban life, I guess. Yeah, and were you creative? I, I get the feeling you were really crafty as a child. I was. Um, my mom always had projects for us. Like we were constantly entertained with projects and she was crafty. So it involved a lot of, um, you know, we did, I, I was trying to think of all the different uh, crafts that I did as a kid. And I'm not sure I can remember all of them. It was origami and Sculpey and friendship bracelets and gimp or boondoggle or whatever. It's a regional term, lanyard. Um, but yeah, I did basically anything that came in a klutz book. Uh-huh, right. juggle. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and and did you like really enjoy yourself during those? Because it's one thing for one's mom to sort of present you with all these projects, but it's another thing for you to actually feel like, wow, this is me. This is what I like to do too. Oh, no, I absolutely loved it. I remember my sister, uh, her sixth birthday was an origami party. 
And I was three and a half at the time and was so mad that I wasn't able to make an origami dog. And so like I dedicated myself to be be able to make this like tiny little dog out of paper at three and a half years old. And it was kind of like every time I did a craft, it was to see if I could do it to figure out the puzzle of it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that continues to the day, uh, to this day. Um, Sewing is really, I describe it as a puzzle that you get to wear. Um, so that's how I think of crafting. Yeah, I love that description. And I agree with you 100%. So did your mom sew as well? And did she teach you to sew? Uh, she didn't teach me to sew as a kid, um, although I played on her sewing machine. She used to make all her clothes in the 70s um, when she was a single lady teaching. Um, she did every pattern except quick sew, because I guess quick sew doesn't fit people with big hips. Um And then growing up, she would make all our Halloween costumes. Uh, So we were, you know, cats. And I was a bunch of grapes one year. She had to, like, sew all the felt grapes together. Um, But beyond that, she didn't teach me how to sew. She tried to teach me how to knit, and that didn't work well either. I think I learned better from Klutz Klutz books than from my mom at that age. Yeah, no, understood. Okay. Um, And so when you went off to college, were you interested in English like she was and wanted to you know, study that or something else? Oh, absolutely not. I went to college as a chemistry major. Oh, wow. Um, I was a gigantic science nerd in high school. Um, I was a chemistry major and a French major um, because I loved French. And uh, then over the course of my freshman year, I realized that I did not want to be in a lab and that kind of eliminated the chemistry major. Yeah, it's funny Um, because when you're in high school, chemistry is one thing and and there is some lab work, but it's not quite the same as what college chemistry is going to involve. Exactly. I liked the the ideas behind chemistry. I didn't like the practicalities of it, I think. Um, and about that time, I started, um, I downloaded editing software on my computer and started making trailers, just like in my free time in college. And that translated into becoming a film major uh, fo- with a focus on editing. Um, And then when I graduated college, that's what I went to New York to do to become a film editor. And when you say a focus on editing, what does that mean exactly for those of us who've never like really figured out what like what what is film editing? What does that mean? Uh, Well, basically with film, you know, you shoot everything and then you have hours and hours and hours of footage and someone has to go through and look through all of it and piece it together into a cohesive whole. Again, it's another giant puzzle. Um, so we study the, like the philosophy behind it and then the actual, uh, digital, a uh, part of it and learned on an Avid machine and on Final Cut Pro, um, Final Cut Pro is what I ended up using after I graduated, but having all that technical knowledge of how to slip, uh, footage and, you know, put transitions in and all that. I see. But there is a philosophical piece of it where, cause you're making artistic decisions along the way. Right. Uh, there's the idea that like you always want to you want to try and cut on action. So if someone looks right, then the, the camera moves right. And then you cut when they're turning their head so that you can see what they're looking at. Oh, um, oh, there is cool. sort of like a philosophy behind it. Or yeah. Science. Yeah. Interesting. So when you graduated, it sounds like that's when you learned um, some of the other technology. I'm assuming through a job that you had. Yeah, it was um, the mid 2000s. So it was a lot of unpaid internships in New York <laughs> City. Um, and I was an intern on a, a few um, documentaries and a couple of very tiny um, scripted movies. 
Okay. All right. And did you like doing that work? Because I mean, you're not doing it now. So I'm wondering if whether you were at some point kind of like, uh, I don't want to keep doing this. Oh, no, I, I really liked it. And I was slowly moving up and, you know, going from the intern to the assistant editor. Um, and I got to um, ghost edit an entire movie. And then the 2008 financial crisis oh, happened. Right. Um, so I had I was only just starting. I was about two years into the business and hadn't made all the connections that I needed to survive the financial crisis as a freelancer. So I was unemployed for a year. Um, and that's when I started, you know, just applying to be able to live and ended up at Barnes & Noble, um, which I ended up falling in love with, which I didn't expect. I had worked retail before and hated it as a cashier. Um, but at Barnes & Noble, they made me a bookseller where you got to fill in all the tables and, you know, actually sell books to customers. And I really, really liked that part. Yeah, right. So and were you a big reader as well in your life? <laughs> Not at all. To my mom's chagrin. Oh, that's uh, interesting. I'm, I joke that I'm very good at pretending I read a book. So I can have a in-depth conversation about For Whom the Bell Tolls, even though I've never read For Whom the Bell Tolls. <laughs> Um, and that ended up proving very useful as a bookseller. Um, I do read. I like uh, I like science books and sociology and kind of, you know, learning how people work and how uh, systems work. Um, but I was never the big reader that my mom hoped I would be when I was younger. So um, you were at Barnes & Noble for a while and kind of rose up through the ranks there, it sounds like. And what um, what did you enjoy about that specifically? Because you said you ended up falling in love with it. Yeah, so I started as a bookseller and I moved my way up to become, um, it's like a, a mid-level manager of two of the stores. And what I really liked was being able to, um, at the one, the first store I started at, you had a lot of freedom to create displays. So you got to go around the store and pick out books that you think people might buy and build tables out of them. And then, you know, actually watch people purchase things off those tables. And that was just, it was so much fun. Um, it was like a little game thinking like, oh, this book just came in. I bet I can get people to buy it. And then you did. Um, and so I really loved that part. And I ended up getting into um, merchandising as a manager and inventory control, um, I just liked being able to try and guess what people would want to read and seeing if I was right. Yeah. And, you know, it sounds to me sort of like if you wanted to open a business, a creative business of your own, become an entrepreneur, this was like on the job training in this really fabulous way that honestly, you probably can't get in some kind of graduate school business program or whatever, because you're actually watching consumer behavior as it unfolds based on decisions you've made. And so I wonder if there were some things that you feel like you learned during that period that you've carried forward in what you do now. Oh, absolutely. Um, a lot of it is like just like technical stuff, you know, figuring out how to keep track of my inventory and look at sales, um, sales reports and all of that. Um, and it was just, it is right that it was on the job training of kind of figuring out the customer. Um, shortly after I opened my business, I took a course at the local university and they spent a lot of time figuring out the ideal customer um, after people opened their business. And I had done that before I opened my business because I knew what to look for um, from Barnes & Noble. Like I knew to figure out like, okay, I'm looking for, you know, millennial women who, you know, will spe spend X amount of dollars on their wardrobe and that type of thing. 
so yeah, it was definitely on the job training. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I wonder too, around like customer service questions or any of that piece of it, because one thing a lot of people don't anticipate when they open a business, although it seems obvious, but you know, it's all the customer service and, you know, people come into our kinds of people come into Barnes and Noble and some of them are really angry or dissatisfied or making ridiculous demands on you as the person working there, et cetera. And so learning how to sort of manage that um, it probably would be valuable for being an entrepreneur as well. It's really true. And it was two New York City stores. So you get a lot of variety and a lot of a lot of stories to tell. Um I was very, very shy coming out of college. Like I didn't want to answer phones at Barnes and Noble. And finally, like just through short, uh, sheer uh, persistence, you end up, you know, answering phones and dealing with problem customers. And as a manager, that's especially what you deal with. Um, I had one argument with a woman who was trying to get to kill a mockingbird, but not the one written by Harper Lee and spent about 10 minutes trying to convince me it was the other To Kill a Mockingbird. And dealing with that stuff um, was was fun and definitely helpful uh, with running my own business. Yeah, um, because you have to have kind of a thick skin, I think, and sort of not take it personally, understand that this person came in here with whatever and um, and is therefore acting in this way <laughs> that might be completely irrational. And, you know, you're on the other end of that. And like, what role do you play? Yeah, the, I had one customer give me uh, a really good piece of advice. And he said, you should never say I'm sorry to a customer. You should say I apologize because I'm sorry say is saying that you did something personally wrong, whereas I apologize is like, well, something bad happened to you. I'm, I apologize that that happened. And it kind of separates you and puts the onus on the business and not you personally. Um, and that was incredibly helpful. Yeah, that's great advice. I love it. Okay, so um, how long in total were you there at Barnes & Noble? Um, about 10 years, uh, I think. Uh, it was nine years straight, but I had worked a year before when I was an unpaid intern in film. Um, so 10 years total. I left in uh, 2017 when I opened the business. Wow. So that was a really long stint. Did you miss the documentary filmmaking and the and the film editing and things like that while you were there? Um, I did a bit. It, it becomes a, a matter of technology that the longer you're away from it, the harder it is to get back into it because the technology has advanced so much. And I still like editing, um, although I, it's funny, I have to do videos for the the business and I'm like, oh, fine, I'll go and do it. And then I'm a perfectionist about it because I know what good work looks like. Um, so it's a bit of a double edged sword there. Um, and I still I still love movies and I still go and you know watch documentaries and think like, OK, this was hundreds of hours of footage. I wonder what other stories there were, stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, but when we got up to this point in your story where you're about to open your own business and leave Barnes & Noble, you don't yet know how to sew because your mom tried to teach you and it didn't really work. And so how did you actually come to learn to sew and what was that experience like? Um, so I was working at Barnes & Noble and I you know, I cycle through hobbies. I, I'll do something for about three months and then lose interest in it. Um, back when I had been like 2011, I had a crochet business for like little Amigurumi toys um, just on Etsy when Etsy was first starting out. 
Uh, and I, I sort of got too much cramp, too much cramping in my hands to continue to do that. So I tried to find a different hobby. And I was looking on, I think it was apartment therapy. And I found a blog post that said, you know, projects to sew this weekend. And I found a dress that I really wanted. Um, and I had a wedding coming up and I was going back to Buffalo to see my mom. And so I was like, okay, we're going to spend the weekend. You're going to teach me how to sew. Um, so we, you know, went to Joanne Fabrics and got all this fabric. My mom made fun of me because I was going around picking things by color. And she's like, no, that's that's the wrong weight. Like you have to touch the fabric. Um, and ended up picking out a bunch of quilting cotton, um, which still worked for the dress. And sewed it on a 1970s Kenmore machine that only had straight stitch and zigzag stitch and no warning when the presser foot was still up, which became a huge thing as I had to rip out all the stitches every time I didn't put the presser foot down. Um, but yeah, we made this dress, put in an invisible zipper without an invisible zipper foot on my first ever attempt at sewing a thing. Um, and I still, I, I can still wear the dress. I wore it last October when I went to Camp Workroom Social. But Made that, went back to New York City, bought a sewing machine, um, the cheapest one I could find that would still do everything in case it was just like a three-month hobby that I would lose interest in, and the, fell in love with it. I guess the rest is history. Like, it just became a bit of an obsession for me. Um, yeah, it kind of hits a lot of the things it sounds like you enjoy, sort of the puzzle and, I don't know, something about the the methodicalness of it or, or something. I'm not sure if you can identify what is it about this one that made it stick when the other ones would come and go. I think the usefulness helped because like, yeah. you know, I was making the amigurumi toys and I still have like a whole bunch in my house that I, I guess I can like give away now, but like you end up with all this stuff that you can either sell or just like put in a corner, but the, with sewing and especially with sewing clothes, everything I make, I can use and wear and display, you know, on my person. Um, so that really, I think was part of it. Um, and yeah, the meditative part of it is really nice that you just kind of like zone out, you know, you're doing one task in front of another. Um, it's probably good for my, it's definitely good for my mental health. Yeah. I'm a person who's always in a rush. And so, which is generally good in that I get a lot done. But um, sometimes can be bad because the attention to detail cannot be there. And I find sewing to be great that way because it, you have to slow down. As you said, you have to do one task in front of the other. And if you do it wrong, you have to take it all out and do it again. And so you need to double check, like, am I sewing the sleeve the right way? <laughs> or did I cut two left sleeves or whatever it is? You know, you have to be very careful. And for me, that um, is very psychologically helpful. And I also really resonate with what you're saying about craft um, being useful, which is what I love about craft versus art, where I used to take a lot of art classes and I'd have all these paintings and it was like too many paintings. But the nice thing about craft is that what you make, you can use. If you carve a spoon, you can use it when you make dinner. <laughs> or if you make clothes, you can wear them. And, and there's something so um, practical and satisfying about, about that application of art. Yeah. And I would get ideas in my head. Living in New York City, like you're surrounded by people with excellent fashion. Um, and I think being there just really kind of focused what I wanted to wear and my own personal style. But then I would get something in my head and I wouldn't be able to find it in stores. 
and being able to make it and not worry about if it was in fashion or not um, was great for me. You know, I I spent like six or seven months trying to look for a pair of red jeans and couldn't find them anywhere. This was before I knew how to sew. And if I had known, I could have just gone to Mood, bought some red denim and made red jeans. So now I get to satisfy that itch right away. Today's episode is sponsored by the Gnome Schoolhouse. And here is a message from the Gnome Schoolhouse. Are you in need of a getaway, a place where you can relax, learn, and unleash your creativity? Look no further than the Gnome Schoolhouse, your perfect retreat destination. Nestled in the heart of North Dakota, the Gnome Schoolhouse offers an extraordinary experience for those seeking a unique escape from the everyday chaos. Step into a world where beauty, tranquility, and inspiration intertwine. Picture this, a beautifully restored schoolhouse surrounded by vast farmland as far as the eye can see. It's a site that you will that will take your breath away and transport you to a place where time slows down and your imagination runs wild. At the Gnome Schoolhouse, you can connect with nature and meet our friendly sheep and alpacas as they graze peacefully in the fields. Experience the joy of communing with these gentle creatures and witness their playful interactions. Seeking a space to work on your own creative projects? Look no further. Our spacious schoolhouse provides the perfect environment for you to delve into your artistic endeavors. Whether you're a painter, a sculptor, a writer, the possibilities are endless. And for all you fiber enthusiasts out there, we have something special just for you. Visit our on-site fiber mill, where you can witness the magic of transforming raw wool into exquisite yarn. Let your fingers glide through the soft fibers and experience the satisfaction of creating something truly unique. But the Gnome Schoolhouse is not just about indoor activities. Venture into the great outdoors and explore the wonders of nature. Kayak along serene rivers, hike through picturesque trails, and immerse yourself in the beauty of the nearby state park. There's no shortage of adventures to embark on. When you're ready to unwind, simply relax and bask in the awe-inspiring surroundings. Let the gentle breeze caress your skin as you find solace in the peaceful ambience of the Gnome Schoolhouse. It's a place where your mind can wander freely and your spirit can find its center. And here's the best part. The Gnome Schoolhouse offers a range of luxurious amenities to enhance your experience. Our unique guest rooms, each with a private bath, provide a comfortable and intimate retreat where you can recharge and rejuvenate. Hungry after a day of creativity and exploration? Indulge your taste buds with our amazing cuisine. Our talented chefs create culinary delights using locally sourced ingredients, ensuring each meal is a feast for both the eyes and the palate. Looking to unwind with a drink? Our bar offers a wide selection of beverages from handcrafted cocktails to local craft beers. Sip your favorite libation and mingle with fellow guests sharing stories and laughter as the, as the evening unfolds. And here's the best part. The Gnome Schoolhouse is available for you to host your own arts and crafts retreat. Gather your friends, colleagues, or fellow creatives and let us provide the perfect backdrop for your next creative endeavor. We'll take care of the details while you focus on what truly matters, letting your imagination soar. The Gnome Schoolhouse is calling, inviting you to create your own unique experience, so don't miss out on this extraordinary opportunity. Come and explore all that the Gnome Schoolhouse has to offer. Visit their website at www.gnomeschoolhouse.com, that's N-O-M-E, schoolhouse.com, to book your retreat today. 
the Gnome Schoolhouse, where relaxation, learning, creativity, and luxury unite in perfect harmony. Thank you so much, Gnome Schoolhouse. And now back to my conversation with Mary. And do you remember what um, company, I know your mom didn't, so was it quick sew patterns because they didn't fit properly. Do you remember what company that first quilting cotton dress you made uh, what the pattern company was? Um, It was, it doesn't exist anymore. It was Dixie DIY. um, And it was the Bonnell dress. It had like little cutouts at the waist on the sides, like little triangles where you could see skin. Um, And I think she only made like four or five patterns and then went away. Uh, but I I always started with the independent pattern world. I guess it was perfect for that era. I never really got into the big four. I've made a few, but it's really not, it's not my sense of style. And I, you know, I started sewing with, um, I got Tilly Tilly's book for Tilly and the Buttons um, when I first started. And it was back when Colette was still Colette. Um, and Grainline Studio, I made a pair of shorts. And then I found Deer and Doe and the European ones. And those are exactly the type of style that I want to make. Um, and paper cuts and the, the Oceana ones. Paper yeah. cut is New Zealand. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that you started, I mean, I guess because you came in sort of after 2010, 2012, you came into the sewing world. Um, and you came in through a dress you found online that was recommended by apartment therapy. Um, I could see how your first patterns would be independent pattern companies. And I find that to be very interesting because I think a lot of people, when they first come in, but maybe it was sort of prior to that period, um, come in with big four patterns because, and going to Joanne, because that's what they know. Like when you think of a sewing pattern, you think of the envelope with the tissue and the cabinet. And if you think of fabric, you think of going to Joanne because that's like the big box well-known place. Yeah, I definitely have memories of going through the pattern books with my mom back when we were doing um, the costumes. She would look through the costume books for what we were going to wear. And I would just flip through the actual patterns and look at the dresses and all the pants and, you know, the drawings. Um, But I think it was part of this. I was in Brooklyn, so there's not a Joanne Fabrics in like a hundred mile radius. You have the garment district, which I found incredibly intimidating as a beginner. So being able to be online and, um, you know, order fabric from fabric.com when they still existed um, and download the PDF patterns directly. It was it was very uh, kind of insular thing where I wasn't going out and searching fabric or searching um, sewing stores, but I was able to do it all in my apartment and it was very satisfying. Yeah. And I think that intimidation factor cannot be ignored because as a, I mean, you sound like you were somewhat of a shy person. I'm definitely a shy and introverted, introverted person. And I know that for years I was afraid to go up to like the cutting table, even at Joanne, because I didn't know what to ask for and I didn't want to look stupid. So I just didn't go at all. And I would only buy like things that were already cut, like from the remnant bin or something, because I didn't know what to say, how much I really needed and that sort of thing. And so I was intimidated by that whole process. And because I didn't have anybody to teach me, you know, it was like you're left alone. But the nice thing online, right, is that there's all this information and you can figure it out and get the recommendations that you need, um, you know, right from your computer and then order online. And so it sort of takes away that intimidating feeling that some people, myself included, might have. Yeah, exactly. And I think I was always uh, 
kind of fabric focused in a way that I didn't realize, but looking back uh, helped. Um, my sister used to joke, I, Gilda Radner had a quote that her sense of style was determined by what didn't itch. And that was exactly how I grew up. Like if it was at all itchy, I was not going to wear it. So I was, I was aware as a child that I didn't want any polyester. I couldn't have any wool. And so I was always kind of cognizant of the content of what I was wearing and how it felt. And so that helped when I was looking for fabric. I was like, okay, like I know that I like a cotton shirt. I'm going to have to look for a cotton poplin and that would eliminate everything else that I wanted for it. Um, so it was kind of uh, being a very fussy kid helped me in the end. And so it sounded like um, you fell in love with sewing and um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to turn it into a business. You had had a crafty business previously. Um, and and so maybe, I mean, at that juncture, you could have probably felt like, oh, I don't want to dive into that whole thing again. <laughs> I'm just doing this as a hobby. And, you know, maybe I don't want to work at Barnes & Noble anymore, but I can go get another sort of job. Um, but what made you decide that this was actually going to be something you wanted to pursue as a business? It was sort of a culmination of things. I I was, I think, 35 years old, and my boyfriend at the time had gotten into grad school. So he was going to leave New York City, which meant that I was going to have to move apartments in New York City and try and live by myself um, on a Barnes & Noble salary. And I wasn't, I kind of reached the peak of what I was wanting to do at Barnes & Noble. I wasn't going to advance any farther on the retail side, and I wasn't getting hired on the corporate side. So I had a, a moment of like, okay, we're at a crossroads. What do you want to do? And I thought of that, um, you know, if you had a million dollars and could do anything you wanted, what would you do? And it was always open a craft store. Like I I thought about it way before I even was at Barnes & Noble, I think, um, back when I was, you know, learning how to knit after college. Um, and so... I knew that I wouldn't be able to open a brick and mortar craft store from what I had in savings and, you know, what I could do. And so I decided to go online and find a niche that hadn't really been tapped. And the subscription box model really was not covered in sewing. Uh, there were, I think there was just so Haley Jane. And at that time she was only in the UK. Um, so I was like, okay, there's something here. And I've been doing uh, Blue Apron for a while, even though I know how to cook. I just want someone to send me a box of produce. Um, so it all kind of came together into the idea for Needle Sharp. And I was like, okay, I'm 35. If I don't do it now, I'll never do it. Like this is the time to try. Right, right. So um, I guess my question would be, if you notice that nobody had done the subscription box and sewing for garments, in the U.S. for the U.S. market. Was there a reason for that? In other words, <laughs> in other <laughs> words sometimes, right, you might not have had that thought then, which is good that you didn't, but I feel like sometimes there is a reason why someone hasn't decided that this is a good idea. So was there, is, is it, is it more complicated than you expected? I guess is the question. Oh, absolutely. I went in very <laughs> naively. Um, but I did at Bar at the Barnes and Noble I was at, there was a man who had worked for Fortune 500 companies and then retired and decided to work at Barnes and Noble just kind of like because he still wanted to work. And so he had this great wealth of business knowledge and I gave him the idea and I was like it's either it's not being done because nobody's done it yet or it's not being done because it's already been tried and everyone failed and I just don't know about it. 
So it's one or the other, but do you think this is a good idea? And he was like, yeah, I think there's something there. Um, so I, you know, got my website domain. I started making um, a website on Shopify with my my editing knowledge, I guess. I had some graphic design from that and went in completely naive. Like I had no idea about SEO. I just thought like, if you build it, they will come. And then you open it and you get one hit and you're like, oh no, that that's not how that works. Oh my God. It's so disappointing. And it's also like confounding. You're like, but I built the website and it's pretty like, why, why don't I have not even no customers, but no visitors to this website? Like what is going on? It's, it's really frustrating. (laughs) Yeah. So it was a huge learning curve that I didn't know that I had to learn. Um, So the first, God, I would say like two years, but it's probably I'm I'm still learning. Um, but it was definitely like getting on Instagram and trying to build from a completely zero Instagram following because I had never I had never really done anything for myself. It was just wasn't a platform that I was on. And I to my delight, I discovered there was a huge sewing a community there. But yeah, I was building from scratch entirely, just like on a hope and a prayer. Yeah, absolutely. So when so you knew it was going to be a subscription box, you knew it was going to be focused on garment sewing from the start. What was the first product? Like what was it a, a you know, what was the first box or was it a kit or like how what was the first thing? Um I my eyes were bigger than my stomach. I decided okay, we're going to start out with three boxes and into each box you get three choices of fabric. So now we're up to 12 uh fabrics for the first box. Um, and then you had to get all the, you had to get all the notions and the patterns and everything. Um, the first box was a wiggle dress. Um, yeah. Uh, and I had, uh, I had a pattern from sew over it and one from Colette when they still had paper patterns. Uh, and I think a grain line studio one. And I think I sold, uh, 10, 11, which for the first box wasn't bad. Um, and then I did pencil skirts was the next one. I think t-shirts were the one after that. Um, every box has a theme and then you get to pick your fabric. The big thing that I wanted to distinguish myself from the other subscription boxes is I knew that if you're just getting a box of like sewing products, the way you would with like, um, one of those beauty boxes, you're really going to tap out very quickly because there's only so many times you can receive a thimble and a seam ripper and some other thing that says sewing on it. So I wanted it to be a box where you knew what you were getting and you knew what you were creating. Um, and that's where the themes came in. And you got to to eliminate the um, the para- analysis paralysis. You only got three fabric choices. So at least it made it a little more accessible to you. You can be like, oh yeah, I like that pattern and I like that fabric. I'm done. Right. And in that way, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's sort of like, like stitch fix. Like, you know, you're going to be getting these garments in the mail with that, you know, subscription service. And, um, and, and in some of those not stitch fix, but some of their competitors, you're able to sort of preview them online and make a couple of choices. Like, oh, I never wear shirts like that. And I don't want that one, but that one looks interesting, you know, so kind of preview, but then it does take away the analysis paralysis of saying like, oh, I don't even know what I want. Here's these pre-selected things and it's going to come to you. And now you're going to have nice clothes, you know? So like this box is going to come to you and now you're going to have a project. There were some choices involved. Um, Did you have too many choices available in the beginning and like narrow that down 
Or, you know, have you, has that been a learning process, the sort of level of choice, the amount of choice that people have? Um, it's actually stayed pretty the same in terms of the each product. It's always, you know, you pick your pattern and then you have your three fabric choices. I did actually expand. Um, in the first year, I added a curvy box because I wanted a box that was always um, inclusive up to size 30 um, at the time. Um, and I ended up eliminating that box this year because there are so many pattern companies now that go up to size 30. I can just have, you know, the three boxes and then one always be inclusive. I didn't have to have a separate box. Um, but otherwise the model has pretty much stayed the same. And now, um, you get a choice of two different themes, um, just because not everyone wants to make a dress every month. Maybe they want to make shorts instead of a dress or they want to make a top instead of a skirt. So I have a new theme that's never been done before um, and then a tried and true theme of one that I'm kind of reprising. So if you missed it before, if you hadn't been a subscriber, you can still get it. And I wanted to highlight what you said earlier about a sewing box that contains a bunch of notions and supplies that's sort of similar to one of the beauty boxes. And the issue there being that um, people don't need more and so they cancel. And one of the, so that's one reason why people cancel subscription boxes is because they already have too many things. And another one is because they haven't used it. So that can be an issue as well. Like I'm in a um, neighborhood uh, Facebook group and there's a lot of moms in there and they, you know, give things away that they don't need anymore and things like that uh, to the group. And there's often people in there with um, Kiwi crates. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's like for children's yeah. projects, like your mom probably would have liked it back in the day. <laughs> um, but, you know, they'll say uh, and they'll, they'll show a picture and they're like, here's 12 of them and they're unopened. <laughs> Does anybody want them? And it's like, wow, like you got that for a year and never did the project. And that is a real reason why, I mean, that person should definitely cancel that subscription box. So that's a re another reason why people cancel. I don't know if you've sort of encountered that and sort of how to make people feel like I'm doing the project and I do want another one. Uh, I've definitely met people who are like, yeah, I have like four or five on a shelf. Luckily, I put them all in a very nice box that, you know, you can just put on in your closet and then pull mm -hmm. out when you want to make it. Which, uh, by the way, I have a, yeah, I have a kit that I just did last week that I've had in my closet for three years. So there's that too, right? The benefit, it's not like a, a food box, like it doesn't go bad. Um, but also it's, you can skip any month you want. Um, there's absolutely no penalty to skip. Um, no obligation. If you get a prepaid subscription, like you have to do those three months. But after that, like you can cancel, you can skip, you can come back. It's all very, very easy to kind of transition um, if you don't want to sew one month, but you want to come back the next month. Um, and hopefully, like I'm always amazed by the people who get like three or four boxes a month. And I'm like, how do you sew that quickly? I'm lucky if I make one project a quarter. But uh, they seem to love them and, you know, probably so a hell of a lot faster than I do. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the software that makes all of this function, because you're seeing that it's pretty flexible. 
if I'm a subscriber and I'm going away for the month of July, I can put it on hold, get it, come back in August and get a box. And there's a lot of back end uh, automation that has to happen in order for you to track this successfully as a very small team or just one person. So, um, so tell us a little bit about like the infrastructure, the technology infrastructure that's allowing needle sharp to function. Uh, that has been probably the biggest journey. Um, as I said, I started out on Shopify and I was using, I was, I don't know what it was called at the time. It's bold now uh, for their subscription service. And during the pandemic, uh, like a lot of craft businesses, uh, my sales were going up and I was offering stay home and sew kits that were flying off the shelf. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to completely customize my websites, you know, get it rebuilt, get everything and the back end, the customer portal, exactly how I want it. And um, I found a company and put together the website. And the front end of the website ended up wonderful. I'm really, really happy with it. And the back end of the website ended up being a gigantic catastrophe. Um, as we, I switched to Recharge, and Recharge changed their API as Shopify was changing their API as my custom website was being built. Ah. So the thing that they said they could build in June didn't work in August of the next year when I was launching. And it was another 14 months before it became completely functional and about twice the budget that I had originally been quoted. Um, but now everything is up and running and, um, you know, very customizable. You can switch levels. You can go from, you know, the $75 box to the $135 box with ease. You can skip your months. You can see what's coming up. It's it's exactly how I want it now. But it was it was quite the struggle to get it there. Yeah. And I think that that's worth talking about because your website does look beautiful and it looks like it was designed by A.O. Lydia. I don't know if that's if that's accurate. It was. Um, I wasn't going to say their name in case because it was such a fraught experience for me. But, but it, but it, but it looks beautiful from the customer side, and I think that's important. I know, like the back end, it sounds like there was some technology craziness that <laughs> ensued. Yeah. Um, but, but um, you know, I think that the trustworthiness from a consumer point of view, when you look at it, is really high. Like you look at it and you think this is a really solid company. I trust putting my money here. I know I'm going to get my product. The product looks really beautiful. And, um, and that attention to detail is there. And it, it just seems, um, professional, I guess, and well-designed. It does make it seem like, it seems like a, you know, a company that has like 15 employees and not just me in my house with a whole bunch of fabric nearly falling over on me. Yeah. Do people think that sometimes when they email you? They do. Um, I did hire a VA to help me with customer service. So now there are two people um, and they can, you know, separate Mary from the VA. Um, but yeah, it. I would definitely get complaints of like, you know, why aren't you offering free shipping like Amazon? I was like, well, Amazon is way, way bigger than I am. Um, I think it also, I, I know a lot of people do this. I talk about the business as we. So whenever I reply, she's like, we look forward to hearing from you, even though it's just me. There's kind of like the, the royal we to it. Well, that's because you have ideas for the future, you know, <laughs> ambitions. Exactly. exactly. So that's totally fine. And then one of the other things that a lot of su subscription box owners end up offering is replenishment because sometimes somebody gets the pattern for these pants and it comes in the March 
um, subscription box and they love it. And then they make the pants and then they want a pair for the fall or for the winter in wool or whatever it might be. And so they loved the fabric they got from you. And then they want to replenish the kit with more and maybe different or maybe the same. And they want to make something similar again. So um, was that something you offered right off the bat, like the the, the ability to buy fabric directly? Uh, not for that particular reason, but yes, I always had the fabric and patterns because um, for a lot of wholesalers, you have to buy a certain amount to get the fabric, even though, and you're buying it before you know how many you're going to send out. Um, so I was ending up with a lot of inventory that I wasn't using in the boxes and I needed to get rid of. Um, so I opened up the fabric store to sell off, you know, if you had to get a 15 yard bolt, but you only sold 12 yards in the boxes, you know, you want to the consumer to be able to get those last little pieces. Um, and the same with patterns or what would happen is you have someone cancel at the last minute and you don't want to be, if it's the first time they're doing this and they're a loyal customer, you're like, okay, yes, you can cancel, but then you end up with the pattern and you want to sell the pattern, um, instead of just sitting on a whole bunch of inventory. So that was always part of it. And then I started doing, um, standalone kits in addition to the subscription boxes. So, uh, if I had a lot of fabric left over from the subscription boxes and a few patterns, I would put together something kind of like you could try the kit and see if you like the concept before you subscribe. Yeah. And, and as there's I said, people, those there's people really out there who, well. yeah, there's people out there who just don't want a subscription. Like they just, yeah. they, they refuse to have anything that like renews. They don't want that. You know, they, a kit is much more appealing for them for whatever reason, or they just want to buy one gift for one person and that's it. Right. Or, and for me, it was, you know, I had an idea, but I didn't have three other patterns to complete a theme. So I was able to just offer like this one really lovely pants pattern or a dress that I liked, but didn't have anything else to go and create a full monthly theme out of it. And talk a little bit about the pandemic, because as you mentioned briefly earlier, that was a time when kits like this were absolutely ideal. Stores are closed. So you can't go to, you know, mood and pick out a couple of yards of fabric and then go somewhere else and get something out. Like everything, you know, everything's closed. So it a kit was the most ideal way to source all those materials and everyone was home and everything's canceled. So it's not like you're going out on Friday night. It's like you might as well sew something and be productive and feel um, some sense of satisfaction, even though you can't do so many other things. Yeah, I did. Um you know, you spent the first like three weeks of the pandemic lamenting like, oh God, things are going to be closed down for a while. And then you're like, okay, now how can I go back to my business and kind of come out of it in some productive way? And I, in April, I did stay home and sew kits. And I think I did a skirt, a pair of pajamas and a t-shirt and sold out of the pajamas and the skirt in the first day. Um, they just flew off the shelves in the in that early time. And I kept doing the kits um, every month. I would introduce a new kit. And as as the world opened up, they started selling a little bit less, but they're still, you know, a key part of my business. And I've turned it into um, a quarterly capsule wards, wardrobe. So I did a winter kit and picked five, or winter capsule and did five patterns and paired them with fabric and launched them in January and then did another one in April. Um, and then we'll do another one in June. 
So if, again, if you don't want to do the subscription, but you want just everything prepared for you, um, those are the ones to go for. And it all comes back to like, I just, uh, the tagline for the company is be so delighted. Like I want you to open up the box and have it be like a gift that you gave yourself. And then you get, you know, you get the gift of the project and then you get the final result of the garment. So it's like a tool, a dual gift. And let's talk about that unboxing experience. So that's really an important part of this that um, when it arrives, you feel delighted. So how do you make that person feel that way? What, what is the unboxing experience like? Well, I have custom boxes um, designed uh, with the designs that I had for the website. So they kind of mirror that um, custom tissue paper. So and close with a little sticker. So it opens up like a present. Um, each kit has a piece of candy to give you a little boost. Um, all the notions are packaged up in a little nice little uh, little bag. Um, and for the subscription boxes, each one comes with a surprise Um so I've done, I've featured other people's uh, little kits, like there was um, a cross stitch and a mac, um, matchbook that I found, um, you know, bookmarks. Again, not to go overboard on the notions, but, you know, a notion that I think you wouldn't buy yourself, like silicone finger covers or thimble or um, bobbin holders or something like that. Um, this, the past month in June, uh, it was ice dyeing kits. So something extra to surprise you. That's lovely. Everybody loves a surprise. And when it comes to sourcing, especially I'm thinking for the patterns, you know, you can set up a wholesale account with most independent fabric pattern companies on their website and, um, and you know, place your order. There might be a minimum, but you could probably cover that fairly easily. Um, but when it comes to sourcing fabric, that is a whole other situation. Um, and I know people who go to LA and like buy, you know, sort of um, off cuts or buy from jobbers and that sort of thing. I don't know how you figured out the sourcing aspect for fabric. Um, well, I started the business when I was in Brooklyn. So I did have access to the garment district and the fashion uh, guidance that was there. There's um, a, a an expo that comes through every or twice a year uh, for smaller uh, smaller brands. If you want like fifteen yard rolls instead of five hundred yard rolls, um, and I started going to that. I go uh, during the pandemic. I didn't go, but I was going twice a year in January and July. And you form relationships with some of the wholesalers. Uh, there are a few key ones that I hold on to. Um, Telio. And there's another one called Gordon, which I know sources, I think uh, Caroline from Blackbird Fabrics, I think she used to work for them. They're based in British Columbia. Um, and so I have those, uh, Robert Kaufman as well. And then living in Buffalo, I'm kind of, I have access to New York City. So I can go there twice a year. And I can also go to Toronto and source the Canadian uh, wholesalers up there. I can't do the jobbers though, because I need a, a consistent reorderable fabric. It can't be like fashion dead stock that right. I offer it in a box and then, oh no, I sold 40 yards, but they only have 25. Now what do you do? Right. Uh, so it has to be something that is in stock and reorderable. 
Right. Absolutely. Okay. Any other final lessons before we get to your recommendations um, for or advice for people who are thinking, I've always wanted to run a subscription box, maybe not for garment sewing, but for my own thing. Um, it seems intimidating. Uh, you know, what do I need to know? I think the biggest part is getting the systems in place of like, you know, how you're going to get the uh, your supplies every month and how you're going to put them all together, you know, get a a system of keeping track of the orders and knowing how much you're going to buy. I luckily am a little obsessed with Excel spreadsheets um, and built an entire database in Airtable. So I have a pretty uh, intricate system of like you order a box and I know that I need two yards of fabric and one spool of thread and so many buttons and all of that. And I'm able to put it all together in the final piece. But getting all that and getting it all organized, I think is the biggest part for subscription boxes. Yeah, absolutely. Organization systems. Systems are hugely important. And also down the road, should, you know, um, Needle Sharp go from being just you to being a we, meaning a much larger company, and you <laughs> wanted to sell it, having those systems there, being able to pass that along is important. Or even if you wanted to take a break and go on vacation or for whatever other reason you needed to take some time off, um, you know, systems are, are super important to be able to, for any business to function, but especially it sounds like for a business like this. Yeah. And that was definitely something that I learned at Barnes and Noble because as a manager, I was in charge of inventory ordering. I was the manager who did all of that. And the one who, you know, kept track of the boxes that had to go out for the next Tuesday. So it was definitely on the job training for that. Yeah, absolutely. And good one too. That's great. So I want to make sure we get to your recommendations, if that's okay with you. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of them is baking. You were saying that you are a good cook, but an average baker. So what have you been working on with baking? I, I, um, only myself. So baking is always fun because you end up with like 12 cookies and then I guess you eat them all yourself. Um, but I've been trying to, I've been trying to bake some bread, making pita has been my most recent project. I found one recipe that didn't work and didn't create the little pocket in the center, but another one that involved more time. And I finally got like pocket pita. Yeah, that's exciting. We have a sourdough starter. His name is Fred the Bread. And we made him um, probably, I don't know, April, May, 2020, and he's still going strong. And it's really my son who's taking over, but it's great because I love having fresh bread. Like what is better than fresh bread right out of the oven? So we just had it this weekend and it's great. Yeah, it's so good. So um, I think that's another pandemic project for a lot of people that hopefully stuck around. Um and you've been doing English paper piecing. I love English paper piecing. And for people who sew but don't want to be tied to the room where their sewing machine is, English paper piecing is the ideal project. Yeah, it. I mean, it goes against the usefulness thing. I'm not sure. I'm just making a whole bunch of hexagons and I'm not sure what I'm going to do with them, sewing them into placemats or something. Um, but I like the the repetitiveness of it. And, you know, I'm probably doing it wrong, but I find it calming and they don't have to look nice. Yeah, it's less, no, it's so fun. It's less perfectionist than when I'm tr- trying to make a, a garment for myself. 
And they are useful in the end. I made um, a cover for the book where I write down our weekly meal plan. Like I write down what we're going to eat that week. Um, and I made a like a English paper piece cover for the book. Now, do, does the book need a cover? Probably not. But, it, you know, there are ways to use them <laughs> besides placemats if you really want to. I, I figured out a couple. But um, and then Boy Genius is your last uh, recommendation. Yeah, that was my topical cool girl thing. Um I spent the pandemic listening to Phoebe Bridgers and Fiona Apple. Um, I think I'm a Fiona Apple evangelist. Um, and so Phoebe Bridgers has her like super group with Lucy Dacus and uh, Julian Baker. And they just came out with their first full album, I think last month. Um, so I've been listening to that nonstop. Okay. So this is for us to get on Spotify so we can make sure <laughs> we tune in. I haven't listened, so I will give it a try. So Mary, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was sponsored by the Gnome Schoolhouse. At the Gnome Schoolhouse, we believe in crafting unforgettable experiences tailored just for you. Let us help you plan your dream retreat filled with moments of serenity, connection, and inspiration. So why wait? Unleash your creativity, embrace the freedom of wide open spaces, and discover the retreat of your dreams at the Gnome Schoolhouse. Book your escape today at www.gnomeschoolhouse.com. The Gnome Schoolhouse, crafting memories that last a lifetime. Thank you so much, Gnome Schoolhouse. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.